Hi, I'm Ravi Agrawal, Foreign Policy's Editor-in-Chief. This is FP Live. Welcome to the show. Economic policymakers from around the globe traveled to Washington this week for the IMF and World Bank's annual spring meetings. I was just there too, and I had a fascinating discussion with the finance ministers of Chile and Albania. But in general, the backdrop to the meetings was stark. The IMF warned of an anemic outlook for the global economy amid rising interest rates, stubborn inflation, and the war in Ukraine. It projects global growth to slow to just 2.8% this year. And that led U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen to warn that we shouldn't overdo the negativity. Her prognosis is that the economic outlook is actually reasonably bright. Well, which is it? And since this is FP, how is Russia's economy doing amid U.S.-led sanctions? And how worried should we be about the economic impacts of a more hawkish China policy in America? Well, this week, we have one of the world's smartest economists to answer those very questions. Larry Summers is a professor at Harvard University. He's held a variety of top jobs at the World Bank, the National Economic Council, and of course, he was U.S. Treasury Secretary under Bill Clinton. As always, FP subscribers get to send in their questions, which I sometimes ask on their behalf. If you'd like to do that too, subscribe now. Use the code FPLIVE for a discount. You can also watch these interviews live in video if you go to foreignpolicy.com slash live. But now, here is Larry Summers. Larry, welcome to FP Live. It's such a pleasure to have you on. Glad to be with you. So I thought we'd begin just with the IMF's forecast and the contrast that the IMF struck with uh, what Secretary Yellen said. So grim or reasonably bright. What's your prognosis for the economy this year? Well, Secretary Yellen said we shouldn't overdo negativism. And in a sense, that's a tautology. We certainly shouldn't overdo anything. I think I share the IMF's uh, sober uh, sense of the situation. We were late to the party with respect to recognizing uh, inflation in the United States and most other countries. And when you're late to take an action, it tends to be more difficult to take that action without accident and without incident. And so achieving the proverbial soft landing, I think, is not going to be easy in uh, the United States. And when it's not easy in the United States, it's not going to be easy in other parts of the world. Put that on top of the broad financial consequences of sudden increases in uh, interest rates, substantial difficulties in the Chinese economy, growing concerns about uh, fragmentation, issues that are important in energy and food markets. And I don't think you have a particularly encouraging picture uh, going forward. I've been coming to these IMF uh, World Bank meetings now for more than 30 years. And this is certainly in the lower part of the distribution with respect to the prospects going forward. And if you look at the boldness of the plans that are going to come out of these uh, meetings, 
I'm not sure they're really commensurate with the magnitude of the challenge, whether it's uh, climate change, whether it is uh, resilience and maintaining integration in the global economy, uh, whether it's dealing with heavily indebted countries. It doesn't quite seem like the magnitude of the solutions are looking particularly large relative to the magnitude of the problems. Hmm. What are the chances, do you think, of a recession uh, this year? I think the chance that a recession will have begun this year in the United States over the next 12 months as this year, I think, are probably about 70 uh, percent. It's not something we can be certain of. But as I put together the lags associated with monetary policy, the credit crunch risk, the need for continuing action around inflation, the risk of geopolitical or other shocks affecting commodities, 70% would be the range that I would be in which I think would put me at the pessimistic end of the spectrum of uh, opinion, probably not at the extreme, but probably more pessimistic than average. Hmm. You know, we often take subscriber questions in these discussions, and one of our subscribers, Philip Deal, wrote in with what I thought was an interesting prompt. He said that the the Fed's attempt to cool the economy with rate hikes um, has contributed to, you know, a banking crisis. We saw this most recently with SVP. But I'm curious what other crises you think might emerge uh, globally because of this new interest rate climate that affects every bank and every borrower. Look, it's much easier to service your debts, whether you're a real estate developer or uh, a nation, or a person who's just uh, bought a car. It's much easier to service your debts when interest rates are low than when interest rates are high. One of the papers prepared as a backdrop for these meetings talked about how large a share of emerging market budgets are now going to debt service. And that's importantly a cause of high interest rates. And approximately that makes debt defaults uh, more likely. That makes uh, imposed austerity as countries can't roll over their loans more likely. That makes political backlashes more uh, likely. So I think you do have more financial problems likely to be ahead. Now, some of this is just a reflection of the fact that we're not in the world we were in before of secular stagnation when the world had an excess of savings. But a lot of it is due to the fact that we just were much too late to moving to contain inflation. And when you're too late, you have to be too big. And that's making uh, the global picture 
more difficult. But I think it's going to be a hard time for real estate almost everywhere. And I think there are going to be a lot of issues in a lot of places around the debts of governments. It strikes me that there's a wide range of takes on how Russia's economy is performing. Uh, you know, the IMF predicted at the start of this year that Russia's economy might even expand by a tiny amount. Other economists have said that's not really true and that the headlines obscure the fact that Russia's GDP declined sharply in 2022 and that Russia's data is fuzzy. What's your sense of how the U.S. and the West more broadly have handled sanctions on Russia uh, in light of its invasion of Ukraine? The issues are very hard, and I don't think anybody really knows. My best guess is that there's a lot more pain in the Russian economy than is suggested by the IMF economic statistics, but that relative to the expectations that were created when Joe Biden said that the United States would turn the ruble into rubble and that our sanctions would destroy the Russian economy and make it impossible for them to continue their war effort, I think less pain has been successfully imposed than would have been expected at uh, that moment. I think the most important problem has been that sanctions just work much better when they are globally imposed than when they're imposed by a certain number of nations. And we have not had the breadth of the coalition here with respect to uh, Russia that we deeply believe we deserve. And that you can certainly make a case that half the world's people and more than a third of the world's GDP is in countries that are studiously neutral um, at best. And as long as that is the case, and as long as the world is very heavily globally integrated, there are going to be limits to uh, the damage uh, that we're going to be able to do to the Russian economy. And I think that is... Uh, the reality of the situation. I wish I could say that Russian economic suffering is comparable to Ukrainian economic suffering, but I don't think at this point it's true. Yeah, and it certainly doesn't seem to be stalling uh, Putin or at least stopping him from from uh, um, the war this year. You know, now there's always the problem with these sanction strategies that the people who miss the pharmaceuticals are never in the family of the ruling elite, whatever country uh, it is. And so there's always this aspect that sanctions are an instrument that is difficult to target effectively towards the people who are committing the greatest uh, sins. Does it ever strike you that America's sort of deployment of sanctions now on so many countries around the world, does that weaken U.S. sort of economic power? Does it weaken the dollar? Does it encourage other countries around the world to seek alternatives? Ravi, there surely are effects in uh, those directions. In the case of Ukraine, 
the Europeans are pretty much totally with us. The Japanese are pretty much totally with us. I don't know where people are going to go who are looking for an alternative to the dollar. If you're looking to have a currency that won't be, be involved with a currency that is predictable, governed by the rule of law, where the relationships will not become transactional and political, it's hard for me to see how anybody's going to decide to use the RMB. My read is that if you're looking at countries where people are trying to get out of the currency, the main thing that's propping up demand for RMB is uh, Chinese capital controls. So it would not be my view that the dollar is facing some kind of large-scale threat. But I do think in many ways the most profound question for American foreign policy, and it's one that very much implicates economic policy, is that as right and just as we feel we are, there are just a large number of countries who are not aligned with us or who are only weakly aligned uh, with us. Uh, I heard a comment uh, from somebody uh, in a developing uh, country within the last few days who said, look, I, I like your values better than I like China's. But, you know, the truth is when we're engaged with the Chinese, we get an airport. And when we're engaged with you guys, we get a lecture. And it's hard not to choose airports uh, over uh, lectures. And so that's why I think the financial diplomacy uh, here and the broader question of the kind of support we're prepared to give global financial institutions is uh, so profoundly important. Just another beat on Ukraine. You, you've proposed an interesting plan. Uh, you've said that the West can use Russia's frozen funds, I think some $300 billion of it, to rebuild Ukrainian infrastructure. How exactly would that work? But also, doesn't that set uh, a worrying precedent, I think, for, for the global financial system. Robbie, this is one of the very rare cases in my experience where the expedient popular easy thing is also the morally, intellectually, and substantive right uh, thing. Why should taxpayers pay for reconstructing Ukraine when it's Russia that broke uh, Ukraine. We have already crossed the Rubicon of denying Russia access to the assets that it was holding in Western capitals. The question is whether those assets are going to sit sterile or whether they're going to be used to meet a debt that uh, Russia has the debt for the destruction it has wrought in Ukraine. That's what happened with respect to Iraqi assets when Iraq invaded Kuwait. That's certainly what uh, Russia imposed on Germany with respect to German assets 
uh, or for that matter, Japanese uh, assets at the end of uh, the Second uh, World War. And if there becomes a precedent that if a country wantonly invades another country, as recognized by the UN General Assembly, that its globally held assets are going to be deployed to repair the damage they do, if we establish that as a precedent in the global system, I think that will be a very positive uh, thing. It might contribute to uh, deterring uh, future aggression. So I think this is the right thing to do. I think this is the precedented thing to do. I think this is infinitely easier politically. And my only surprise is that it isn't moving forward uh, more aggressively. I think there's yet another virtue, which is this war will not go on forever. Mm. There will come a time when this war ends, when there will be some kind of negotiated ceasefire or armistice or something. And if funds that are currently in play are available. This is what we'll do with the money in this direction, or this is what we'll stop doing the money in that direction. That gives the diplomats another tool that they can deploy as they drive uh, towards uh, some kind of agreement. So I actually think the merits here are very clear. And I think it's important uh, that this be seen realistically. Mm. The absorption capacity of Ukraine is very much measured in the tens of billions of dollars a year, not in the hundreds of billions of dollars a year, and probably not actually immediately in the high tens of billions of dollars a year. So adopting our proposal doesn't mean immediately rendering permanently inoperable all of Russia's reserves and assets or even half of Russians' reserves and assets, it means starting a process of deploying them to incur debts that Russia has taken on through its uh, aggression. Hmm. This is something I've worked with Bob Zelik and Philip Zelikow. Neither of them are on the same side of the political fence as I am, but I don't think this has anything very partisan about it. And frankly, I think it's a time where we need some constructive and more creative legal thinking than mm. we're getting from some parts of the international legal community. The hugely noted legal scholar, Larry Tribe, was very clear that he thought this was entirely legal and the right thing to do. And there are plenty of people out there who share uh, mm. his view. And so I think we just need to... Uh, Get moving on it. And you are listening to Foreign Policy Live. Remember, you can watch these conversations live and on video on our website, foreignpolicy.com. Subscribers get to send us questions, which we sometimes include in the discussion. So sign up. Use the code FPLIVE for a discount. Let's talk about industrial policy. So we ran our print cover on this topic recently. Uh, there were some terrific essays by Adam Posen and Iswar Prasad. And Posen, uh, in particular, wrote a piece that has, I think, struck a chord in Washington. 
He argues that over the last few years, first under Trump and then with Biden doubling down, America has become protectionist. It's prioritizing domestic manufacturing at all costs, and that doing so flies in the face of centuries of economic history. So Posen says U.S. industrial policy as practiced is self-defeating. It'll harm innovation, it won't create jobs, and it'll foster corruption. Now, you've talked a fair bit about industrial policy. Do you feel, I mean, would you agree with Posen's uh, basic argument, or do you think there's some merit to what uh, U.S. trade policy is trying to accomplish here? I put it this way. The best generals are the ones who hate the war the most, but know that you sometimes have to fight it. The best industrial policy advocates are ones who hate interfering with markets, but know that it's sometimes uh, necessary. Should we be limiting the export of hugely sensitive national security sensitive semiconductor chips? Yeah, we should be. Should we be worrying about resilience with respect to key technologies like semiconductors? Yeah, we should be. Should we be using those things as vehicles for childcare programs? Absolutely not. Should we be using those things as vehicles to support certain kinds of categories of labor vis-a-vis -vis others? No. Should we uh, be celebrating the job-creating benefits of those uh, programs as distinct from the achievement of national security objectives? I would answer uh, that question, uh, no. I think we have been way insensitive to the various political economy issues associated with industrial policy. Uh, I like to remind people that we had a major resilience initiative in the 1920s. It was called the Jones Act. It was the act that uh, says that ships can't carry, foreign ships can't carry oil from Houston to New England that raises heating oil prices in New England every winter. That makes uh, it much more difficult to move fuel so that there are power interruptions in uh, Puerto Rico and creates a whole variety of other distortions. Why did we have an infant formula crisis? We had an infant formula crisis because of our policies to do industrial policy with respect to infant formula by limiting in various ways the ability to uh, import it from abroad. So I think that you've got to pay attention to issues that go beyond the universal assumption of competitive markets that is the stuff of first-year economics classes. But I have to say, I really don't like uh, the attitude that surrounds the industrial policy uh, movement. And I wish we had reluctant warriors rather than trigger-happy enthusiasts who were running a great deal of the policy. 
you know, mm. Ravi, I had a chance to have some involvement in this uh, sphere myself when I was uh, working, heading the National Economic Council for President uh, Obama. One of my responsibilities was overseeing the team that was led by Steve Ratner and Ron Bloom that approximately was managing the automobile bailout. Mm. And the first thing we did was establish a set of principles that we were going to do the minimum necessary to deal with the debt of those companies and to move them back to being regular private sector entities, that we as the government were not going to be using them as testing grounds for environmental initiatives or four-day-a-week work-week initiatives or all the various ideas that the various Biden cabinet departments had, mm. that we were going to do the minimum necessary to get back to regular economic business. And, and it, that, I think, was the right kind of philosophy. And I think uh, that program is uh, remembered as having been spectacularly successful. And if we had larded it up with worthy political objectives, in all honesty, I don't think the automobile companies would be as healthy today or that program would have been uh, nearly as successful as it was. So that's a it's a really good argument. Um, but uh, if someone tried to oppose what you've just said, they'd say that the auto bailout was, you know, that was then. And this is now where we're in a world where, you know, the pandemic blew up supply chains. Several uh, U.S. officials, I think most prominently uh, the previous U.S. Trade Representative Robert Lighthizer, uh, have made such public calls and popular calls for decoupling uh, with China. The current USTR, Catherine Tai, uh, prefers to call it de-risking. Uh, the environment, the climate has changed drastically um, from the time you're describing. And to move us to discuss now a little bit about China, you know, is it your sense that the current mood of of trying to decouple or talking about decoupling, and some companies already are beginning to divest from China and look to other countries like India uh, to invest their supply chain resources in. Is that movement uh, a, a good movement? Uh, how do you see it? Uh, I guess both through an economic lens, but also national security. I'd say a couple things. Um, if you were an automobile company, Ravi, and you woke up one morning and you realized that you had a real problem, which is you were entirely dependent on one supplier for all your steering wheels and that you couldn't sell cars without steering wheels and you needed to figure out what to do because it was really risky on resilience grounds. I suspect the first thing you would do is try to have eight steering wheel suppliers rather than one and to have them in a disparate set of places. I suspect the second thing you would do is decide to lay in three months inventory of steering wheels so you could handle interruptions and problems. And I suspect only the third, 
would be to start building your own steering wheel factories. <laughs> right. Even though you had some people in your firm who were looking for more responsibility, who thought it would be really exciting to build a new steering wheel factory. And I think that example is helpful in thinking about resilience. If people manage to make arguments that we need to do something for resilience, where they never talk about job creation, I have a lot of time for those arguments. If the main argument they're making is not about resilience, but that resilience is giving us an excuse for what they regard as job creation, then I'm hearing the traditional uh, protectionist uh, chorus. And I have to say that I wouldn't give the last several US trade representatives very high marks from either party in terms of parsing those distinctions. I also think it's crucial to remember, uh, Ravi, that much of the time our imports are the key input into our exports. So when we protect the steel industry, that's one way of thinking about it. But we've only got about 60,000 steel workers in the United States, and we've got 6 million people who, use, who produce products that use steel. So when we raise the price of steel inputs, we may be saving some jobs or some kind of robustness, but we're undermining a vastly larger part of uh, the economy. So yeah, we we got to think through our economic strategy with China, and we've got to think it through without illusion. But here's what really scares me. I don't think in today's United States, any ambitious person, whether they're a foreign policy thinker or whether they're a potential elected official, thinks it's viable to be in the dovish half of the spectrum vis-a-vis mm. China. And when everybody wants to be in the hawkish half, then the hawkish half becomes ever more hawkish as people leapfrog one another. And then when that process is seen in China, and to some extent inevitably is mirrored in China, you get those dynamics operating and playing off against each other. And I think that is really uh, quite uh, dangerous for our country. So what I'm hearing from you um, is that the escalatory spiral we seem to be locked in, um, in America and China, this is both sides, uh, that is, you've called it dangerous. I'm. Why is it, do you think, that saner, dovish voices or voices that are channeled through an economic prism uh, like yours, why are they not being heard right now? I think that... Sometimes you have these kinds of moments of uh, epistem what, what you might call uh, epistemic uh, closure. Hmm. Probably the book about government and public policy that I've read that had the biggest influence on me was uh, David Halberstam's The Best and the Brightest. And it describes how in the climate of opinion, that prevailed at the beginning of the Kennedy administration, 
it really wasn't possible to not be highly alarmed about any communist threat. I also think that there is a natural intuitive economic appeal to protectionism, just like there's a natural intuitive appeal to Aristotelian physics that believes that heavier things fall faster uh, than uh, lighter things. And that's a part of it. I believe that because of other economic mistakes that we have made as a country, there's more economic uh, insecurity in the land and more areas left behind. And that inevitably breeds frustration and frustration breeds scapegoating and scapegoating foreigners is more attractive. Mm. And also, and this is the last thing, China has done its level best to make it as difficult as possible not to be a hawk in the United States with wolf warrior diplomacy, with uh, the way in which it's managed its uh, military uh, spending with a variety of its kind of conduct um, around uh, the world. And so I focus on us because that's what we can control, but I don't in any way want to be any kind of apologist for China or be any kind of way judge that historians will somehow look back at this period and think the greater fault lies with the United States, uh, very much the opposite. Hmm. Larry Summers, we've gone way over time. Thank you for staying with us and thank you most of all for your insights. Thank you. And that was Larry Summers. Next week, the leaked Pentagon documents. What actually happened? And how will that impact the war in Ukraine? I'm going to speak with Colin Carl, the US Undersecretary of Defense for Policy. We'll discuss the here and now, of course, but we'll also get deep in the weeds on broader strategic issues, such as how to prioritize various U.S. defense needs at home and abroad. Remember, if you want to watch these in video live, go to foreignpolicy.com. Subscribers can submit questions in advance and help frame these discussions. Sign up. Use the code FPLIVE for a discount. You can also see who else we have coming up on the show weeks ahead of time. I'm Ravi Agrawal, FP's Editor-in-Chief. I'll see you soon. Hi, I'm Annalise Riles, Professor of Law at Northwestern University. I'm also an anthropologist and the host of a new podcast, Everyday Ambassador, where we give you the small tools that make big change. The idea for this show has been a long time in the making. I actually remember the exact day I started thinking about it. It was March 11th, 2011. I was in Japan conducting research on the financial markets of Tokyo. All of a sudden, I heard a loud rumbling sound and the room started shaking. Everything came crashing off the shelves. I looked out the window 
and I could see the skyscrapers swaying so much that they looked like they would touch. And then the sirens started going off. A tsunami was on the way. These were the harbingers of one of Japan's worst ever disasters, the meltdown of the Fukushima nuclear power plant. The Japanese government now says two reactors are in partial meltdown and four more are at risk. The meltdown completely turned Japan on its head. I saw hundreds of stunned office workers covered in dust walking down empty train tracks to get from the city to their homes in the suburbs. Electricity was out, internet, cell phones. Supplies flew off the shelves of stores. Geiger counters became an in-demand item, which is never a good thing. Living through a crisis of this magnitude was an inflection point for me. To prevent the next Fukushima or any of the other crises we face today, we'll have to work much more effectively across silos of expertise and national boundaries. And we'll need to harness the wisdom of everyone, from local fishers to nuclear physicists, on how the world really works and what happens when things go awry. Using this approach, I've gone on to spur countless innovations in global policy. And that's what this podcast is all about. Everyday Ambassador peels back the curtains of high-stakes leadership and gives everyone backstage access to the most powerful methods of diplomacy. In each episode, we'll break things down into deceptively simple moves that everyone can make to help build a more peaceful and sustainable world. Like giving a gift. You want to make it tasteful. You want to make it thoughtful. You thought about the other individual. You thought about what their likes and dislikes are. Or creating a fiction. Taking on a fictional scenario and a role outside of the one that you occupy in your day-to-day -day life allows you to think through what you would like to have done differently. Or just taking the time to have fun. Trying to see this as more so building long-term relationships that are going to be helpful uh, down the line when negotiations are a bit harder, as all negotiations are. Each week, you'll hear surprising stories which reveal the moves you can make to change the status quo, to find ways to connect and move things forward. So join me and become an everyday ambassador. Coming to you this spring on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen.